Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. It's March 9th, 2005, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. So it was on this day in 2005 that a third gender option of eunuch was added to Indian passports, finally officially recognising the Hijra community, which mostly these days consists of trans women who were born male and then had gender reassignment surgery, but as a term can also include intersex people and those who were castrated as children. And throughout most of India's history, it's a community that's been considered to have important cultural, political and spiritual significance. Yeah, and the change that occurred on this day was that if you went to passport.gov.in, you were invited to write either M or F in column three of the form. But then came the new option for eunuch, please write E in the box. It goes out saying gender identity is obviously a spectrum and the way that cultures choose to segment that spectrum differs from culture to culture. So the labels we use don't necessarily have exact counterparts. Like you said, Ollie, like herger these days are often seen as synonymous with trans women. But they're not exactly historically equivalent to what we would call transgender or intersex. They were seen as a third sex rather than having transitioned 100% from one into 100% another. And also most of them are not born physically ambiguous as we would associate with intersex people. And historically, the reason that it was translated as eunuch, which seems to have had a strangely long life in Indian jurisprudence, was because that was the most similar category that colonial Western writers understood at the time. I mean, eunuchs themselves have a centuries-long history but the major difference is that eunuch is not really an identity you know a eunuch was someone who was born male and had been castrated in order that they would be trusted to guard high status women in the harem which is probably the most you know common association with eunuchs these days and also that they wouldn't be able to marry and have children so they wouldn't have family loyalties that could possibly distract them from you know serving whichever overlord they were employed by and those things aren't true of the hijra community i think that's why it's hard to determine i mean not that by the way it's our job to determine, <laughs> although I suppose our show title is The Retrospectors, so that suggests we have some, some judgment and view. But I, it can be hard to determine whether this is regressive or progressive in the sense that you'd imagine most trans people in any country in the world would prefer simply to be recognised by the gender that they live as, which is most likely man or woman. Whereas at the same time, we're talking about 2005 here, so this is basically at least 10 years ahead of this conversation in the West, isn't it? Mm. We're still battling with trans legislation. It's still a hot issue. And yet in India, this came through then. And they'd had a member of the unit community, Shabnam Mousi, elected as a member of the Legislative Assembly in 1999. So there's kind of like an acceptance within their culture that these people exist that wasn't really being talked about in the West and yet they are very much these people. They're a third group of people. Yeah, and that spiritual dimension goes right back to Hindu mythology. And the story goes that when Lord Rama was exiled and his entire kingdom began to follow him into the forest, he told his disciples, men and women, please wipe away your tears and go away. And so they all left. 
But still, a group of people stayed behind at the edge of the forest because they were neither men nor women, and they were the Hijras, and they waited for 14 years until Lord Rama returned, which won them this special place in Hindu mythology. And Hijras also feature prominently in India's Muslim history as well, serving as the kind of sexless watchdogs of the Mughal harems. And they had this high-status position in society that you saw in the Ottoman Empire as well. And you saw it more recently than you think. I mean, this is the thing that's really come up time and time again whilst we've been researching this show over the last year, which has constantly staggered me, is before embarking on this podcast, I always thought of eunuchs as a thing from ancient China, the end of the Ming dynasty, you know, where you know there were tens of thousands of eunuchs in the Grand Palace. But they turn up much more recently than that all the time. In our episode, The Last Sultan, we were talking about how Mehmed VI arrived in Malta with his eunuchs in 1922. And here we are talking about a group which, as you say, Rebecca, quite correctly, are no longer all eunuchs who have been castrated, as we understand it. But actually, some are. And it's complicated as well by the fact that, without getting too grisly on a show that I know a lot of people listening to over their breakfast, gender reassignment surgery is expensive. I wonder if, in fact, sometimes it is little more than castration if you don't have much money in India, you know, 30 years ago. So it's complex, this, isn't it? But it's much more recent than you think it is. And they are still considered to be a blessing at an auspicious occasion in India, to the extent that if you're blessing a childbirth, a wedding, a housewarming, you invite someone from the Hijra community there. Yeah, they have this really interesting range of roles. Hijras dress in glittering saris and they can be seen walking through crowded intersections and knocking on car windows, offering blessings and sometimes also begging, but they also dance at temples. They do also sometimes do sex work guided by a guru who fulfills this hybrid role of spiritual leader and pimp. But then they do crash fancy weddings and birth ceremonies singing bawdy songs. And many Indians believe that hijras have the power to bless or curse, which some of them trade off. Yeah, I mean, you can see it as extortion rather than begging, because the whole point is, give me the money and I'll leave you alone. But people are willing to spend the money because they genuinely are superstitious, because they believe there's a spiritual element to the hijra. There's such a weird polarised attitude, which comes from the fact that before the British colonised India, you had centuries where they did have a role, and it was still a role outside of the mainstream society, but it was revered and it had its place in the hierarchy. But then, of course, you had the colonial authorities who saw the hijra basically as deviant men. They categorised the hijra as one of the criminal tribes. They, there was sort of a trumped-up thing where they accused them of kidnapping children and castrating them, which they found a handful of cases where any children had been castrated, and it wasn't always clear what the circumstances were. And those negative attitudes, obviously, then by osmosis over the decades and the centuries spread out into wider Indian society. So you do have this weird dichotomy now where hijras are respected in a way, but they are also extremely marginalised and they've got far less access to things like health and education and jobs than the average person. The hijra even face prejudice from the trans community in India now. In 2016, the Transgender India Facebook page launched a campaign called I Am Not a Hijra, in which trans people held up signs that had writing on them that said things like, I am trans, but I am not a sex maniac. I am not a hijra. And other ones where they were saying about having professional jobs, you know, I am an accountant, I am not a hijra. Yes, it's a class thing, isn't it? 
It's like, I'm not underclass, but I am trans. Yeah, absolutely. And one major thing which distinguishes hijra from transgender people generally is that they have historically and largely still do live together in multi-generational communities. Mm. It's not just about gender identity. It's about living this lifestyle as well. I mean, the dark side of those communities is that there is this sort of pyramid scheme within some of them where younger chelas or disciples are managed by the mid-ranking hijras who report up to the gurus and they're often steered into this life of sex work. So the money flows up from the people who are working as sex workers and then the protection from abusive customers or police officers also flows down from the gurus. So they're supportive communities, but still the form of community has this kind of dark side. And I think it's that cultural and spiritual dimension that we don't have an exact equivalent of that just makes it so fascinating and kind of challenges the way that we think about gender identity. I think, you know, we're not us personally, but as a society, keen to try and sort people into their boxes, you know, say, right, so you feel this way, so that must mean you're this. And the hijra just have so many different, there's the spiritual component, the cultural component too, they even have their own kind of secret language, it's called hijra farsi, even though it doesn't have anything to do with farsi, the language, which made me think of, you know, polari, you know, mm. the slang that used to be used by gay men, and I think it was also used by sort of street hawkers and fairground men and that kind of thing. They have their own vocabulary as well, so it's not just an identity, it's a way of life as well. They also have an annual festival that's held near Chennai that celebrates Hijra life with song and dance and also this folklore that we've been talking about. But it also has this serious message, which is we want to be treated like normal citizens and we want to gain rights and we want to be able to have our gender identity available on government forms, as was this change that happened in 2005. But we don't want it to be a thing that you actually have to write in. We want it to be standardised and recognised and legitimate. And yet modern Indians are still so torn by their existence that one of the ways that Hijra have been making money, because as we've said, they're often reduced to begging or sex work because they can't get sort of more official jobs, is debt collection. So there's a thing now where debt collectors will get Hijra people to go along to the person who owes money and essentially humiliate them and stigmatise them by standing outside their office singing. And because you don't want the... You basically don't want a load of trans people standing outside your door singing. You will pay your debts. And this is one of the ways now that quite a lot of them have managed to find a living. I thought you were going to say that it had this nice quality that after the debt had been collected, the hijra then offered a blessing to try to soften the blow. (laughs) No, no. Instead, they're just using them as a human equivalent of a howler in Harry Potter. (laughs) Tomorrow. Is he saying that, like, one person might have four kids, but one wheat will only have one wheat? Yeah. Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors. Part of the ACAST Creator Network.